0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Gospel Gal. I am Marissa Namir, Gospel Gal, and this is episode two of That's Catholic, a look at Catholicism, Reformation, belief, and practice with my good friend and co-host, Joy Dudley. Did you like the
1: hearing? Yes, I was going to ask you where who who did that.
0: Well, I can't read her name because it's written in Russian.
1: Ah, it's so pretty. I know. When you get a chance, can you send me because it was you know, like, the, hey, I want to I'll do it right now
0: cuz I'm going to use it for all these episodes.
1: Yes, do
0: it. Just this Catholic one because, you know, that's another thing that people think is Catholic. So.
1: Oh, the Kyrie liaison.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Kyrie. It just means. Grace have mercy. Yeah. Yeah. And last time we recorded, we were basically just going over terminology. It's important to be able to assess things out this way because if you remember in the Garden of Eden, what did the serpent do? He twisted the meaning of something that was said. And that is the way of every false teacher since that time. If you think about Doug Wilson, People like that. Something he continually does is he'll use a word and then he means something completely different by what is being said. So we have to be able, if we are going to, to understand for ourselves and then be able to encourage other people in the gospel and then biblical truth, then we have to be able to find, to find words and give them the appropriate meaning. So last time we recorded, we were discussing the difference between Catholic and Roman Catholic. We defined what Catholic means broadly, and then we discussed how Roman Catholicism is contrary to the one holy Catholic faith, particularly in Reformed traditions. So to hear that episode, you can go to episode one on YouTube, That's Catholic, a look at Catholicism, Reformation, Belief, and Practice, episode one. And you can also go to our blog, Gospel Gal at Blogspot. And there is an article there by the same title. So with all that said, hello, Joyful.
1: What's up? Hanging in. I'm (laughs) hanging in there. It is. I'm just taking it one day at a time. Thanks be to God. Keep leaning into Christ. Yep. That's all we can do. Where he actually leans more into us than we lean into him. I always like to remember that.
0: Well, he abides in us and we in him.
1: Yes. We spoke about Catholicism. We
0: spoke about Roman Catholicism. Key distinction would be that the one holy Catholic church just means church universal. That means all those who are united to Christ throughout history. But we also discussed the creeds confessions, catechisms, all these things sometimes are labeled as Roman Catholic by those who do not understand what they are. Again, go back to our previous episode for more on that subject. Liturgy was discussed. Everybody has a liturgy. It's just whether you have organization or a disorganized mess. And again, liturgy is not Romanist. All right, so today, moving upward and onward, we are discussing priesthood, but we could have just as adequately called it the church offices. Now, this is where Joy's tradition and my tradition part ways a little bit, but we're still friendly about it. <laughs> yeah, you're, um, right. you're right, Marissa. The Anglican church has an episcopate. So that means we have, it's sort of like a hierarchy. We have bishops, priests, and vocational deacons. Those positions are all ordained positions. And to be clear, the word priest, as it's used in Anglicanism, has its roots in old English terminology. This does not mean priest in the sense that a Romanist priest is a priest. Priest simply means in Old old English presbyter. So that would be the equivalent of pastor. Some traditions call them elders. They would be the position of both ruling and teaching elder. Then, of course, there is another difference, and that is that we have vocational deacons who are ordained to ministry, they are ordained. Basically what they are is, as I've heard it, a presbyter in training or a junior presbyter. Unfortunately, as I said in in the last episode, you can have good and bad churches in any denomination. And the Anglo-Catholic members of our denomination would lean more towards a Roman Catholic view of the priesthood. They're not supposed to, and that's not what they vow to uphold when they take their ordination vows, but that does happen, unfortunately. So I I have written in the article a piece from Paramount Church. You can read more about what it is to be a priest in the Anglican Church. One thing that I think is important to point out is that we do believe that the priest is the office in the church that can offer the sacraments to us. So they are responsible to administer baptism and communion. Communion is known as the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the table. Sometimes we'll hear it referred to that way. It's also called the Eucharist. One of the things that's said in that service is that we are in the service. We are lifting our hearts up to the Lord. When we receive the Eucharist, our hearts are with Christ in heaven. And we say that in that sense, the priest is assisting us in offering a sacrifice. We're not offering the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood, as the Roman church would attest what we're doing. in that is offering a sacrifice of praise for what has been accomplished for us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So it goes with the paradigm, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And that would be gratitude because of what Christ has done for us in performing and providing the one oblation, the one for all time sacrifice, we lift our hearts to the Lord in praise and thanksgiving. Do you have any questions about the priesthood as it exists in the Anglican communion, Joy?
1: I think the only question that I would have is you mentioned that only the priest is allowed to be able to administer the sac- sacraments. If you had um, a different priest from a different parish, would they be allowed to administer the sacraments in, the, in your service? I
0: believe so. The way that I've read on that, the priest is ordained in your denomination, they would. The role of the priest's Pastor, presbyter, the, his role is to preach the word, and that is a distinct difference between the Romanist belief and the the Reformed belief. The Roman belief is that the highest means of grace is the Eucharist, the sacrament, where we believe that a primary means of grace is word, specifically the gospel, and joined to that is the sacrament so but we'll get more into the sacraments in another probably another episode i don't know if we'll get to that today or not we have this order because that's directly part of the office of the priesthood is providing the sacraments to us but um you uh, to your question definitely another priest in our denomination would be able to so i have to look into it some more to my understanding Anybody who's going to preach or provide the sacraments in in an ACNA church has to be approved by the bishop. And the bishop is actually the one who determines if a person is going to become a priest.
1: So, how does a bishop become a bishop?
0: They are put forward and then there are votes. Okay, so a bishop is a priest, but he has oversight over the other priests in a diocese. So, if you have a good bishop, then you have hopefully a good diocese. And the diocese is just a number of different churches that are within a geographical region. So I'm still learning. Well, thankfully you're, uh, you'll get to this, but your tradition is pretty concrete. Like it looks like you could just click a link and there it is.
1: Mm-hmm, it, well, yeah, <laughs> pretty much because basically everything from the article I got from our church order, which yeah. is on, can be found online. But I only provided information on just the three ordained offices in the church. I didn't really go into detail about how our classes are um, divided. in then, of course, Synod. You are in the URCNA. United Reformed Churches of North America. There you go. So you are capital R
0: Reformed. Yes. <laughs> and that is from what you said. Said yesterday to refresh our listeners, that is Continental Reformed. Yes. I don't know if I mentioned this to you yesterday, and I don't have any citations for this, so I can't attribute it to anybody specific, but I have heard from John that the English Reformers were strongly influenced by the Continental Reformed.
1: Yes. Um, I think even in the Senate of Dort, they had some um, delegates from England that attended. The Senate of Dort. So I know there was definitely some kind of commingling of ideas Mm -hmm. between the Continental Reformed and the English Reformation too.
0: I mentioned this yesterday too that our church lists the three forms of unity as affirmed documents.
1: To talk about my federation's three ordained offices. These come directly from the, the URCNA church order. If you also want to, to see how else or more details about how my federation is organized, you can also go and click on that link too. Um, it'll give you a lot of details specifically with how they ordain ministers. I think they also had a really neat document about the principles of Reformed worship. And it was kind of like a bulleted list too, which I thought was pretty cool too. So my federation has three ordained or ecclesiastical officers. Um, we have the minister of the word, the elders, and the deacons. The minister of the word, they're responsible for the duties belonging to the office of minister of the word, consist of continuing in prayer and in the ministry of the word, administering the sacraments, catechizing the youth, And assisting the elders in the shepherding and discipline of the congregation um so the minister of the word is basically in charge of preaching the gospel preaching long gospel and administering the the sacraments which is the lord's supper and baptism and then we have elders so the duties belonging to the office of elders consists of continuing in prayer and ruling the church of christ according to the principles taught in scripture in order that purity of doctrine and holiness of life may be practiced. Um, So they shall see to it that their fellow elders, the ministers, and the deacons faithfully discharge their offices. They are to maintain the purity of the word and sacraments, assist in catechizing the youth, promote God-centered schooling, visit the members of of the congregation according to their needs, engage in family visiting, exercise discipline in the congregation, actively promote the work of evangelism and missions, and ensure that everything is done decently and in good order. And then finally, we have the office of deacon. So the duties belonging to the office of deacon consists of continuing in prayer and supervising the works of Christian me- mercy among the congregation, equating themselves with congregational needs, exhorting members of the congregation to show mercy, gathering and managing the offerings of God's people in Christ's name and distributing these offerings according to need and encouraging and comforting with the word of God those who receive the gifts of Christ's mercy. Needs of those outside the congregation, especially other believers, should also be considered as as resources permit. So the deacons are supposed to meet every month to transact the business pertaining to their office and they Shall render an account of their work to the consistory. So um, by consistory, that's basically includes the minister of the word and the elders. And they're basically in charge of kind of um, overseeing the church.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't bring that up, but that's another difference between the way that the churches are set up in Anglicanism and in the Reformed tradition. We don't have elders who rule, but... We have uh, we have what's called a vestry, and the vestry is consisted of the rector, a senior warden who is not ordained, a junior warden who is not ordained, a secretary, and a treasurer. If there are issues that need to be discussed as far as making decisions at the local church level, those are the ones who have those kind of conversations.
1: That's very interesting. How yeah. does your your church usually handle like disciplinary aspects or church discipline? That is
0: something that's handled very delicately. I'm sure there will probably be discussion um, among the rector, the senior warden, possibly the junior warden. If necessary, then the, the bishop would be called in to advise. And I think that's what's been done in our church in the past is that the, the bishop is involved in any kind of disciplinary issues. For the the listeners who may not understand this concept of church discipline, it sounds really scary. And for those who have been abused in the past, that can be a trigger. Joy, why don't you kind of try to define what church discipline
1: is? I will try to do that off the cuff. Um, so with discipline, the word discipline, we kind of associate it with punishment. But if it's done correctly, it's actually supposed to be restorative. Um, so discipline is 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 basically a, the process of it is kind of a last ditch effort. If somebody is in sin or a strain in, in doctrine, then after a certain amount of of time discussion, trying to get that person to repent, um, there might be be a need to exclude the person from um, being able to participate in in worship because they're actively in sin and it's for the protection of that person to let them know that that behavior isn't in line with the life and doctrine of the bible and also to protect the congregation and to protect and maintain the purity of the church it's never to be done as like a whip as in saying like you messed up you're you're out now it's more of more of a pleading to say brother sister you're in error here um please come back And with, and if that person was, was indeed put out of the church, there's always a hope that, that they would come back and that they would be restored to full fellowship.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was a really good way to define what it is. When people ask me about church discipline, I always say there's two types of discipline in the church. If you listen to the word discipline, you can hear it is similar to the word disciple. So that's what you're doing when you When the leadership of the church provides discipline. It's not a negative thing. It's a teaching moment. It is, it's meant for formation and correction. There is formative and corrective discipline that takes place in the church. Formative is exactly what it sounds like. You're forming, you're developing. So anytime you sit in a worship service, You're observing and you're learning. That's the discipleship process. Hearing Christ's words, his commands, his gospel, receiving the sacraments, that's discipleship. So that is the discipline of the church. That's the main way a church provides discipline is discipleship. And then there's corrective church discipline, which Joy just went over beautifully. That process is done very very slowly at least in our i think in Joyce tradition and mine and it is not done lightly it is not done in a way that is meant to humiliate it's extensive counseling with whoever is sinning willfully that's what it is and it's it's not done typically for somebody who's struggling with something it is for someone who who is willfully perpetually, and unrepentantly engaging in sin. So this is somebody who probably isn't going to show up anyway. If somebody is determined they're going to violate God's law, that's the other thing. It's not about your pastor uh, got up one Sunday and decided that every woman in the church is going to work in the nursery. This is not about... Your husband came to church one Sunday with a brand new tattoo. We're not talking about things that are preferences or demands that are inconsistent with what is laid out in scripture as far as the law. Discipline happens when somebody has deliberately broken the law of God and refuses to repent. I hope that's clear. We didn't even go into this in our article, but I think it's important since that word came up for people to understand what it is and what it's for.
1: Okay. I think you did a podcast episode on church discipline, didn't you? Or spiritual abuse. We did. I'll link
0: it. Reformed offices and officers are not not Romanists. We are not re sacrificing Christ. So next category, we listed this here because this is part of what is provided to us by our priests and pastors. Yes. Confession and absolution are not sacraments. Absolution is a sacrament in the Roman tradition. We don't consider it a sacrament, but by all means, it is a blessing that is conferred on us by our pastors. I already spoke to this a little bit, but what I wrote in the article, the first paragraph. In the Roman Catholic Church, absolution is offered as a sacrament by a sacerdotal priest operating in the place of Christ. Wikipedia says the Catholic Church, meaning Romanists, teaches that individual and integral confession and absolution as opposed to collective absolution is the only ordinary way in which a person conscious of mortal sins committed after baptism can be reconciled with God and the church. Did you hear that? (laughs) I'm just digesting what that just said. Okay, so they're saying that confession of sin and absolution is the only way you're going to be right with God. The absolution, which is offered by a Roman Catholic priest. In Reformation traditions, as noted earlier, the believer is justified one time, once by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We do not atone for our own sins or return to God's favor after having sinned. Our sins were forever done away with on the cross and we are continually forgiven people on the basis of our union with Christ. In the Anglican tradition, the law of God is read week after week in the two great commandments in Jesus' words, love the Lord your God, How? With all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds easy, right? Now, when the work of the law, when when the, the law has done its work, exposing us and exposing our sin, the congregation responds in unison with the Kyrie, as you have heard, uh, played on this episode and the last one, the curier in English just says this: "Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy," and that is the appropriate response to having heard God's law. Anglican churches also describe confession and solution in this way. Before reading the law, we thought we were good people who just needed to be better. But after hearing God speak, we're like the children of Israel who heard God delivering the law to Moses on Sinai. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. By hearing God's law, we recognize our sinfulness. In response to God's verdict, we confess and agree with God that we have no way of escape but cry out for mercy. And that's from Paramount Church. The declaration of pardon or absolution, as the law kills us, the gospel makes us alive. The public declaration that God has forgiven our sins, we move from judgment to grace. Whereas the law condemned us, now comforts and assures our hearts that God is now our father who loves us and no longer is our judge who condemns us. That's also from Paramount Church. This is an example of what confession looks like in the public worship service. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter
1: live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy name. Amen. I would say our prayer is very similar to that I have kind of memorized it I use I use our prayer of confession like in my own personal confession a lot because I it just it's very truthful and it feels feels very thorough (laughs) so if you like I, I can recite mine um too so it says um our father we are sinful and you are holy We recognize that we have heard in your law difficult words, knowing how often we have offended you in thought, word, and deed, not only by obvious violations, but by failing to conform to its perfect commands, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. There is nothing in us that gives us reason for hope. For where we thought we were well, we are sick in soul, where we thought we were holy, We are in truth unholy and ungrateful. Our hearts are filled with the love of the world. Our minds are dark and are assailed by doubts. Our wills are too often given to selfishness and our bodies to laziness and unrighteousness. By sinning against our neighbors, we have also sinned against you in whose image they were created. And then it goes, in this time of silent confession, we bring you our particular sins. So, yeah, I mean, just listening to that and even me just reciting that by memory I like I start I start getting a little teary-eyed because it's just so true um, how sinful we are and I think this is part of like one of the one of my favorite um points in our liturgy is this is coming to do this together with the body of Christ because when I hear it hear myself praying this but also hearing my brothers and sisters in Christ praying this. I, I know that we are in this together. I'm not by myself. And it helps me pray it with safety and um and honesty because I know what's coming after it is that declaration of pardon where my pastor usually says by the authority of this word I declare to you your sins are forgiven and you are not under the condemnation of God. And it's I, I don't know. I I've never interacted with the gospel in that way before. It's very personal. Um, And to just to be able to hear it and knowing and understanding that the minister of the word is actually who God uses to speak his words of forgiveness and comfort to you. It's just powerful. It makes you confident in God's mercy. Like, I don't have to tell myself, Joy, you got to believe the gospel, believe the gospel, believe the gospel. No, it's like pronounced over me. And I find myself believing and trusting and resting in it. Um, so yeah, I love, I love this part of the liturgy. I would say this part of the liturgy and, and communion is like my favorite, favorite part in our church service.
0: Yes. Amen. I love it. When people hear these words for the first time, they think that's Catholic. I mean, this is what this episode is about. No, all these words, the words that you recited joy and the words that I read from the book of common prayer, man-made prayers. Yes. This is biblical truth that is summarized. And these are scripture words. This phrase, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. Where does that come from? That comes directly from scripture. Your prayer that you recited in this prayer from the book of Common prayer, very similar. They go to the heart of how we are affected when we hear the reading of the law.
1: And it's a great example of how the law and the gospel work together in our Christian life very distinctly distinctly, (laughs) very distinctly so when we when we um do hear the law read in my church we usually have um any 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 law passage or imperative passage from either the Old Testament or the New Testament that's read out to us when we hear it when we think about what it means to perpetually and obey it perfectly, you automatically feel that weight like oh man, I already I already know that I sinned that week. I already know that I fell short of this hundred percent of the time um, because that's what God requires in his law that he requires perfect obedience. Um, so when we read that law, um, that's what we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to feel that guilt, you know um, weight the weight of Mm -hmm. weight of our sin and that guilt as a reminder that we need to continually turn to Christ for forgiveness and mercy and help in our time of need. And just this confession and absolution time allows for a very tangible way for us to be able to do that and helps in, in continually trusting in Christ and not trusting in our works.
0: Yes. And we, we appeal to him for his mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord we confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's interesting that he accomplished the forgiveness of our sins on the cross, but we still habitually repent and we turn, we turn from our sins to Christ throughout our lifetime because we are justified sinners. Simul justus et peccator, as Luther said.
1: I liked how Michael Brown define the declaration of pardon and absolution. The declaration of pardon or absolution is a public announcement to the congregation that God has forgiven the sins of all those who trust in Jesus Christ. It is an important part of our liturgy in the divine service. After hearing the law and confessing our sins to God, we need the assurance that God forgives us and receives us in Christ. This is what the absolution does. Acting on behalf of the Lord he serves, the minister of the word raises his hand in an oath-taking posture and pronounces God's promise that all those who confess their sins and put their trust in Christ are absolved. He swears an oath upon the basis of God's word and covenant that as surely as he declares the forgiveness of sins to those who put their trust in Christ, so truly has God forgiven them. I can never get tired of hearing That absolution, and I, I personally love it when when my pastor does it because you can tell that he really enjoys doing it. Like he really like smiles. He's so enthusiastic about that, and he like just loves doing it.
0: There's never been any better news. Yeah, and if we could be be a little bit charismatic at that point, it might not be a bad thing.
1: Yeah, like I just want (laughs) to jump up and be like, "Amen, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, (laughs) Pastor, yes." I need to hear it. Say that. Yeah. Can't hear the gospel enough. Say it with
0: me again. Reformed confession and absolution. Absolution It's not. Are not.
1: (laughs) Romanists.
0: They are not Romanists. Okay. This was good. Next time we'll talk about the pastor provides. And that is the sacraments. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Gospel Gal. As stated in this episode, there are articles linked and YouTube episodes on uh, Church Discipline that will be linked in the comments of the YouTube page. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share these episodes with your friends and family. We love to hear that... Our circle is enjoying the gospel, so if you'd like to post comments on the YouTube channel or on the blog, we appreciate those. Ask your questions and suggest new episodes. We look forward to talking to you again next time, and as said, we will be discussing the sacraments in the next episode of this very important topic about Catholicism that's Catholic, a look at reformation, belief, and practice. See you next time. Gospel blessings.